Chapters 1 and 2 of Of Peace of Mind by Lucius Annius Seneca, translated by Aubrey Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 1 Serenus to Seneca. When I examine myself, Seneca, some vices appear on the surface and so that I can lay my hands upon them, while others are less distinct and harder to reach, and some are not always present, but recur at intervals. And these I should call the most troublesome, being like a roving enemy that assails one when he seizes opportunity, and who will neither let one stand on one's guard as in war, nor yet take one's rest without fear as in peace. The position in which I find myself more especially for why should I not tell you the truth as I would to a physician, is that of neither being thoroughly set free from the vices which I fear and hate, nor yet quite in bondage to them. My state of mind, though not the worst possible, is a particularly discontented and sulky one. I am neither ill nor well. It is of no use for you to tell me that all virtues are weakly at the outset, and that they acquire strength and solidity by time, for I am well aware that even those which do but help our outward show, such as grandeur, a reputation for eloquence, and everything that appeals to others, gain power by time. Both those which afford us real strength, and those which do but trick us out in a more attractive form, require long years before they gradually are adapted to us by time. But I fear that custom, which confirms most things, implants this vice more and more deeply in me. Long acquaintance with both good and bad people leads one to esteem them all alike. What this state of weakness really is, when the mind halts between two opinions without any strong inclination towards either good or evil, I shall be better able to show you piecemeal than all at once. I will tell you what befalls me. You must find out the name of the disease. I have to confess the greatest possible love of thrift. I do not care for a bed with gorgeous hangings, nor for clothes brought out of a chest or pressed under weights and made glossy by frequent manglings, but for common and cheap ones that require no care either to keep them or to put them on. For food I do not want what needs whole troops of servants to prepare it and admire it, nor what is ordered many days before and served up by many hands but something handy and easily come at, with nothing far-fetched or costly about it, to be had in every part of the world, burdensome neither to one's fortune nor one's body, not likely to go out of the body by the same path by which it came in. I like a rough and unpolished home-bred servant, I like my servant born in my house, I like my country-bred father's heavy silver plate stamped with no maker's name. I do not want a table that is beauteous with dappled spots, or known to all the town by the number of fashionable people to whom it has successively belonged, but one which stands merely for use, and which causes no guest's eye to dwell upon it with pleasure, or to kindle at it with envy. While I am well satisfied with this, I am reminded of the clothes of a certain schoolboy, dressed with no ordinary care and splendour, of slaves bedecked with gold, and a whole regiment of glittering attendants. I think of houses, too, where one treads on precious stones, 
and where valuables lie about in every corner, where the very roof is brilliantly painted, and a whole nation attends and accompanies an inheritance on the road to ruin. What shall I say of waters, transparent to the very bottom, which flow round the guests, and banquets worthy of the theatre in which they take place? Coming as I do from a long course of dull thrift, I find myself surrounded by the most brilliant luxury, which echoes around me on every side. My sight becomes a little dazzled by it. I can lift up my heart against it more easily than my eyes. When I return from seeing it, I am a sadder, though not a worse man. I cannot walk amid my own paltry possessions with so lofty a step as before, and silently there steals over me a feeling of vexation and a doubt whether that way of life may not be better than mine. None of these things alter my principles, yet all of them disturb me. At one time I would obey the maxims of our school and plunge into public life. I would obtain office and become consul. Not because the purple robe and lictor's axes attract me, but in order that I may be able to be of use to my friends, my relatives, to all my countrymen, and indeed to all mankind. Ready and determined, I follow the advice of Zeno, Clems, and Chrysippus, all of whom bid one take part in public affairs, though none of them ever did so himself, and then, as soon as something disturbs my mind, which is not used to receiving shocks, as soon as something occurs which is either disgraceful, such as often occurs in all men's lives, or which does not proceed quite easily, or when subjects of very little importance require me to devote a great deal of time to them, I go back to my life of leisure, and, just as even tired cattle go faster when they are going home, I wish to retire and pass my life within the walls of my house. No one, I say, that will give me no compensation worth such a loss, shall ever rob me of a day. Let my mind be contained within itself, and improve itself. Let it take no part with other men's affairs, and do nothing which depends on the approval of others. Let me enjoy a tranquillity undisturbed by either public or private troubles. But whenever my spirit is roused by reading some brave words or some noble example spurs me into action, I want to rush into the law courts to place my voice at one man's disposal, my services at another's, and to try to help him even though I may not succeed, or to quell the pride of some lawyer who is puffed up by ill-deserved success. But I think by Hercules that in philosophical speculation it is better to view things as they are, and to speak of them on our own account. And as for words, to trust to things for them, and to let one's speech simply follow whither they lead. Why do you want to construct a fabric that will endure for ages? Do you not wish to do this in order that posterity may talk of you? Yet you were born to die, and silent death is the least wretched. Write something, therefore, in a simple style, merely to pass the time, for your own use, and not for publication. Less labour is needed when one does not look beyond the present. Then again, when the mind is elevated by the greatness of its thoughts, it becomes unstentatious in its use of words. The loftier its aspirations, the more loftily it desires to express them, and its speech rises to the dignity of its subject. At such times I forget my mild and moderate determination, and soar higher than is my want, using a language that is not my own. Not to put multiply examples, I am in all things attended by this weakness of a well-meaning mind, to whose level I fear that I shall be gradually brought down, 
or what is even more worrying, that I may always hang as though about to fall, and that there may be more the matter with me than I myself perceive. For we take a friendly view of our own private affairs, and partiality always obscures our judgment. I fancy that many men would have arrived at wisdom had they not believed themselves to have arrived there already, had they not purposely deceived themselves as to some parts of their character, and passed by others with their eyes shut. For you have no grounds for supposing that other people's flattery is more ruinous to us than our own. Who dares to tell himself the truth? Who is there, by however large a troop of caressing courtiers he may be surrounded, who in spite of them is not his own greatest flatterer? I beg you, therefore, if you have any remedy by which you could stop this vacillation of mine, to deem me worthy to owe my peace of mind to you. I am well aware that these oscillations of mind are not perilous, and that they threaten me with no serious disorder. To express what I complain of by an exact simile, I am not suffering from a storm, but from seasickness. Take from me, then, this evil, whatever it may be, and help one who is in distress within sight of land. Chapter 2 Seneca to Serenus I have long been silently asking myself, my friend Serenus, to what I should liken such a condition of mind, and I find that nothing more closely resembles it than the conduct of those who, after having recovered from a long and serious illness, occasionally experience slight touches and twinges, and although they have passed through the final stages of the disease, yet have suspicions that it has not left them, and although in perfect health, yet hold out their pulse to be felt by the physician, and whenever they feel warm, suspect that the fever is returning. Such men, Serenus, are not unhealthy, but they are not accustomed to being healthy, just as even a quiet sea or lake nevertheless displays a certain amount of ripple when its waters are subsiding after a storm. What you need, therefore, is not any of those harsher remedies to which allusion has been made, not that you should, in some cases, check yourself, in others be angry with yourself, in others sternly reproach yourself, but that you should adopt that which comes last in the list, have confidence in yourself, and believe that you are proceeding on the right path, without being led aside by the numerous divergent tracks of wanderers which cross it in every direction, some of them circling about the right path itself. What you desire to be undisturbed is a great thing, nay, the greatest thing of all, and one which raises a man almost to the level of a god. The Greeks call this calm steadiness of mind Euphemia, and Democritus's treatise upon it is excellently written. I call it peace of mind, for there is no necessity for translating so exactly as to copy the words of the Greek idiom. The essential point is to mark the matter under discussion by a name which ought to have the same meaning as its Greek name, though perhaps not the same form. What we are seeking, then, is how the mind may always pursue a steady, unruffled course, may be pleased with itself, and look with pleasure upon its surroundings, and experience no interruption of this joy, but abide in a peaceful condition without being ever either elated or depressed. This will be peace of mind. Let us now consider in a general way how it may be attained. Then you may apply as much as you choose of the universal remedy to your own case. Meanwhile we must drag to light the entire disease, and then each one will recognise his own part of it. 
At the same time, you will understand how much less you suffer by your self-depreciation than those who are bound by some showy declaration which they have made, and are oppressed by some grand title of honour, so that shame rather than their own free will forces them to keep up the pretense. The same thing applies both to those who suffer from fickleness and continual changes of purpose, who always are fondest of what they have given up, and those who merely yawn and dawdle. Add to these those who, like bad sleepers, turn from side to side, and settle themselves first in one manner and then in another, until at last they find rest through sheer weariness. In forming the habits of their lives, they often end by adopting some to which they are not kept by any dislike of change, but in the practice of which old age, which is slow to alter, has caught them living. Add also those who are by no means fickle, yet who must thank their dullness, not their consistency for being so, and who go on living not in the way they wish, but in the way they have begun to live. There are other special forms of this disease without number, but it has but one effect, that of making people dissatisfied with themselves. This arises from a distemperature of mind, and from desires which one is afraid to express or unable to fulfil, when men either dare not attempt as much as they wish to do, or fail in their efforts and depend entirely upon hope. Such people are always fickle and changeable, which is a necessary consequence of living in a state of suspense. They take any way to arrive at their ends, and teach and force themselves to use both dishonourable and difficult means to do so, so that when their toil has been in vain, they are made wretched by the disgrace of failure, and do not regret having longed for what was wrong, but having longed for it in vain. They then begin to feel sorry for what they have done, and afraid to begin again, and their mind falls by degrees into a state of endless vacillation, because they can neither command nor obey their passions, of hesitation because their life cannot properly develop itself, and of decay as the mind becomes stupefied by disappointments. All these symptoms become aggravated when their dislike of a laborious misery has driven them to idleness and to secret studies, which are unendurable to a mind eager to take part in public affairs, desirous of action and naturally restless, because of course it finds too few resources within itself. When therefore it loses the amusement which business itself affords to busy men, it cannot endure home, loneliness or the walls of a room, and regards itself with dislike when left to itself. Hence arises that weariness and dissatisfaction with oneself, that tossing to and fro of a mind which can nowhere find rest, that unhappy and unwilling endurance of enforced leisure. In all cases where one feels ashamed to confess the real cause of one's suffering, and where modesty leads one to drive one's sufferings inward, the desires pent up in little space without any vent choke one another. Hence comes melancholy and drooping of spirits, and a thousand waverings of the unsteadfast mind, which is held in suspense by unfulfilled hopes, and saddened by disappointed ones. Hence comes the state of mind of those who loathe their idleness, complain that they have nothing to do, and view the progress of others with the bitterest jealousy, for an unhappy sloth favours the growth of envy, and men who cannot succeed themselves wish everyone else to be ruined. This dislike of other men's progress, and despair of one's own, produces a mind angered against fortune, addicted to complaining of the age in which it lives, to retiring into corners and brooding over its misery, 
until it becomes sick and weary of itself. For the human mind is naturally nimble and apt at movement. It delights in every opportunity of excitement and forgetfulness of itself. And the worse a man's disposition, the more he delights in this, because he likes to wear himself out with busy action. Just as some sores long for the hands that injure them, and delight in being touched, and the foul itch enjoys anything that scratches it. Similarly, I assure you that those minds over which desires have spread, like evil ulcers, take pleasure in toils and troubles, for there are some things which please our body, while at the same time they give it a certain amount of pain, such as turning oneself over and changing one side before it is wearied, or cooling oneself in one position after another. It is like Homer's Achilles, lying first upon its face, then upon its back, placing itself in various attitudes, and as sick people are wont, enduring none of them for long, and using changes as though they were remedies. Hence men undertake aimless wanderings, travel along distant shores, and at one time at sea, at another by land, try to soothe that fickleness of disposition which always is dissatisfied with the present. Now let us make for Campania, now I am sick of rich cultivation, let us see wild regions, let us thread the passes of Brutilli and Lusania. Yet amid this wilderness one finds something of beauty to relieve our pampered eyes after so long dwelling on savage wastes. Let us seek Tarentum with its famous harbour, its mild winter climate, and its district rich enough to support even the great hordes of ancient times. Let us now return to town, our ears have too long missed its shouts and noise. It would be pleasant also to enjoy the sight of human bloodshed. Thus one journey succeeds another, and one sight is changed for another, as Lucretius says, Thus every mortal from himself doth flee. But what does he gain by so doing, if he does not escape from himself? He follows himself and weighs himself down by his own most burdensome companionship. We must understand, therefore, that what we suffer from is not the fault of the places, but of ourselves. We are weak when there is anything to be endured, and cannot support either labour or pleasure, either one's own business or anyone else's for long. This has driven some men to death, because by frequently altering their purpose they were always brought back to the same point, and had left themselves no room for anything new. They have become sick of life and of the world itself and as all indulgences pulled upon them, they begin to ask themselves the question, how long are we to go on doing the same thing? End of chapters 1 and 2